disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Coming out of Washington, I had traveled to some 72 countries around the world as part of the XM Bank's effort to try to educate these four markets on what we do and how we could help them. Um, I left Washington thinking there was an opportunity to help these countries and these companies and still do well for Americans who join with me. That's James Harmon, a veteran investor and longtime public servant who gave me some of my best story ideas back in my magazine writing days. Jim directed me to Sub-Saharan Africa and Peru. He held my hand while I covered the 2008 financial crisis. Now, in his 80s, his book, Up and Doing, tells the story of his career, which took him from Wall Street to film and music moguldom, the White House, and now the climate crisis. Lots to take in. Stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon & Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salomon & Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple at linkfulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate us, and recommend the show to others. And follow on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Full D Radio. Joining me is James Harmon, author of the book Up and Doing, Two Presidents, Three Mistakes, and One Great Weekend, Touch Points to a Better World. This is a great book. I was blurbed on it. Uh, James, as I mentioned, was a, a mentor to me in my days as a, as a magazine journalist, really directed me to much of emerging market thinking and, and a redefinition of risk and helped hold my hand as I visited sub-Saharan Africa, Mozambique, Peru, Colombia, and, and, and really is one of those kind of once-in-a-career sources that you find. And so when I found out that he was writing this book about his career from Wall Street to Washington. I had to have him on. Uh, James, again, was in the Clinton White House as head of the Export-Import Bank. And most recently, he's been working on Egypt, where he represented the State Department shortly after the Arab Spring. He co-chairs the board of the World Resources Institute. How are you, sir? I'm, I'm okay. Thank you very much, Robin. <laughs> Good to talk to you again. Likewise. Now, you, you, you're not vain. Tell me how old you are. Let's start, for starters, to fill in the entirety of this career. So I'm, I had a birthday just October 12th, uh, and I was 86 years of age. And you and I have known each other for at least, I don't know, 25 of those years. So you've been at it for a long time. And I trace your roots going back to, let's say, you know, you're at Brown in the middle of the century, and then you decide like I did, and I want to take it back to your epiphany, I guess, after business school, you went to Wharton and you you got your finance degree. What is it about the draw of Wall Street? I don't know what pulled me there. I graduated in 1998, and I, I didn't win a Rhodes Scholarship. I didn't want to go to law school. And so there was always this default option, go to work for Goldman Sachs while you figure it out. What was the draw for you? Well, you might not remember it because it's too far ago, but clearly most of the people coming out of the university world wanted to make their mark. And it was easy to make your mark 
in those days by going to the financial community where you would have an opportunity to work helping a number of companies and if you were fortunate, helping a number of countries. Um, so great diversification of opportunity, terrific variation, but it was difficult to get a position that would allow you to learn everything that you needed to. So I, I was fortunate uh, to, to have just by accident met someone who invited me to join their firm uh, during the summer months when I was at Brown University. And then when I finished Brown and went to graduate business school, they asked me to work with them during that summer. And then when I finished that work, I was offered a permanent position uh, in, in, at the time in the research department of the firm where I had a really good opportunity to focus on investment analysis and the developments that were taking place in the country and in the world. So Wall Street was not a psychographic term back then. Wall Street was really the canyons of lower Manhattan and the, the J.P. Morgan building and you know exceedingly male-dominated cigar-chomping culture. You talk about people out there looking through you know, SEC documents and pouring over documents and things were kind of very manually driven and it was a relationship culture. Tell me about that. It was more than male dominated. It was also quite conservative in terms of limitation of people of, of varied backgrounds. You almost didn't ever see anybody from the African-American community. Hmm. Frankly, the majority of leadership uh, in in the French community were what we call those days wasps, white Anglo-Saxon. So there was very little opportunity for people coming from other countries. And actually, most people would be surprised to know even limited opportunity if you were in the, coming out of the non-Christian world. So this was a conservative community generally, no women, no minority members, but it had a domination of, of the capital-raising world and that gave the, a great power to that group. You know, even among the bankers, it's interesting to me. And by the way, this book, uh, Up and Doing, I love, Jim, some of these things you might think of as just parenthetical asides. They don't mean anything. But I remember things such as the establishment WASP community would, of course, offer you drinks in the kind of the madman sense. And you said that <laughs> a certain Jewish banker was known to put out a, a gorgeous display of cookies and ice creams and cakes. You want to sweeten people and get them on a sugar high. You don't want to dull the senses. Just a, an interesting, you know, tiny clash of cultures that you don't think about today, but that was kind of, you know, in sharp relief there as a, as a young Jewish man going to Wall Street. Yes, I, of course, I was fortunate in that I went to school with a lot of, of people who were not necessarily from the Jewish world or from, I even had a few African-American friends um, who I was fortunate enough to work with in it when I was at Brown University. So I had a little bit of diversification, not nearly what, of course, we have today, but I was not terribly concerned about that. I was concerned about how I would make my mark in such a conservative setting. So that would be hard work, but it required relationships. And there I found that I had an ability to relate to. Sure. So, I mean, the, the part that was interesting for you was building friendships, the thrill of going in and realizing there's on there's value to unlock in meeting interesting people. We'll get to the music publishing industry. We'll get to you know your your experience becoming a prolific owner of plants and trees as a tax shelter. I mean, all of this kind of learning along the way. You kind of almost accidentally become a movie mogul 
and your chance meeting with the Starbucks people, which becomes just a household name right now. But take me back to your life on Wall Street in the 1970s, because it was a very different world back then. It was still regulated. Commissions were regulated. Uh, it was a it was a somewhat dreary time for finance, but people were still making names for themselves and making fortunes. I did have the fortune of working there when I was still in college, way back in, in the late 1950s, early 1960s. And so in those days, early time, we, we would take our lunch by going on the Staten Island ferry boat and you'd have a sandwich and you'd cross over. It was pleasant. And we would eat a sandwich and come back and then walk back to the office. And so it was a quieter, much more, um, I'd say, insulated world at, at the time. But I did get to meet all the senior people in the different firms. And so by the 1970s, or I'd say during the 1960s, I was fortunate to be able to build the business. And that put me into a unique position when the markets declined in 1969, 1970. Uh, tell me about your breakthrough moment at Wertheim. The decision to join Wertheim in 1974, I, I had done everything I could to help my predecessor firm to be successful. Uh, but I knew the clients I had were growing very significantly. And to service them well, I needed a larger firm. And so I took my uh, assistant, both my assistants, and they joined me and, and we interviewed. I actually interviewed and I got three offers, uh, Goldman Sachs and Kuhn Loeb and Wertheim. And I chose Wertheim and I joined them in June of 1974. Wertheim, it was old world very old world. And the partners at Wertheim were not thinking of what I would call corporate finance or investment banking, how do you generate business? They were mostly thinking about employing their own capital so that they could grow their own capital. So that was different than what I had done the prior 15 years. I had been working to build client relationships to service those companies, to help them grow and to generate fee income that would be recurring. I was building a traditional investment banking business. And in the cases of the partners at Wertheim, they were merchant bankers by background, employing the family capital, which was significant in most cases, and looking for investment opportunities. So it wasn't a perfect fit, but they appreciated the fact that I brought clients to the firm. And that was very important to the firm. And as part of that, we would have opportunities to invest in some businesses that we did later on in the music publishing and other areas. So I did generate opportunities for the partners to invest in, but we grew the investment banking business, which is the which amounts to the agency business as opposed to the principal business. So we were adding revenue every year from 1974 on. And in that way, I actually met certain relationships in Europe which allowed me to take advantage of the historic relationships that Wertheim had in several countries in Europe and build corporate finance business through those relationships. You know, you talk about in the book the experience with the crash of 87, and, and, and many things happened to you in the, in the 80s. I'll talk about the music business and the music publishing and the film business. But, you know, these veterans of Wall Street have these 1987 war stories. It was a 22% decline in one day. That just doesn't happen often. I mean, 2008 was horrific. And what we saw with Lehman Brothers and everything leading to the uh, spring of 2009. But to have all this stuff reduced in one day, you know, a uh, good seven years into the 1980s bull market, 
a lot of firms failed. A lot of people lost their shirts, and it required uh, a certain institutional memory and staying power that wasn't all that common on Wall Street then. Well, it was a particularly difficult time. Uh, we had just done uh, a major transaction in which we had uh, sold fifty uh, percent of our firm, Wertheim, uh, to the British Schroders, the leading one of the leading merchant banks in the UK. And literally within a year, say over a year, the crash came. And it was a day that I will always remember because I was driving up to Brown University for a series of meetings that I would have as I was active at the university then. And on that particular day, I was following almost moment by moment the market as recorded on the radio. We didn't have IFOs in those days. And so the radio reported the market declined. But I, of course, was stopping every 10 miles to call the office to check and see how. And in those days, you didn't have an iPhone with you. So you had to go on a pay phone um, and find a phone, call the <laughs> office to find out how, how are we doing. And that is, it was a painful day. I thought a lot about not going to the meeting at Brown. But by then I was halfway up somewhere near New London when when I really realized this was a giant crash uh, and no one understood what was taking place. They just knew that markets were tumbling. It was a panic. Was that telling us that we would have a very serious economic decline? What, what did it all mean? And trying to talk to my associates in the trading department and talk to my colleagues in corporate finance and finding out on the phone, literally, without uh, people would appreciate, without having an iPhone, you're on a payphone in some... <laughs> some gas station off New England Highway heading towards Providence, kept on thinking, this is not so smart of me. I should turn around right now, go right back and try to get myself to New York. It would take me two hours. By then, I'm not sure I could get anything done by that time. So I basically had to work off the phone, driving up. And when I first walked into the meeting, someone said to me, you look like you've been through a difficult time. And I remember them saying, you, had, you lost your normal coloring. <laughs> I thought, boy, I'm sure that that's true because this was a tough recording. Well, my, my question when reading that is you had interactions with Warren Buffett. You were reading him in the 1970s and 1980s. I mean, he's he, he was a star back then. Was there any part of you that he says, I become greedy when others are fearful and the best time to invest, I mean, quoting Rothschild, right, is when there's blood on the streets. It's much easier said than done. I mean, in theory, that sounds great. You always seem to get vindicated. Indeed, the crash of 87 was erased from uh, the charts effectively within a couple of years. Right now, it's not even a blip if you look back at the crash of 87. But was any part of you with your investing experience going back into the you know, 60s and 70s saying, this is opportunity. We have to marshal our cross-Atlantic resources and maybe buy a firm or buy bonds or buy assets. The, the Reagan Fed is not going to allow us to go back to the Depression. That's, that's correct. It's, it's a little easier to have the courage to buy if you had done a liquidity event in the prior year or two. So if you had created some liquidity for yourself. If you raised cash, if you had money, if you had money on the sidelines, if you had dry powder, that's what it is. Yes, if you I mean, so it's easy for Warren Buffett to make that statement. And I, I, actually, I was in a fortunate position because we had done, we had sensed that this was a difficult moment uh, and that prices had moved up. I had lived through 1969 and the 1970s. And so I didn't want to go through that again. So by 1987, we had all 
done very done reasonably well, nothing like the 1990s. Sure. But I, I still I did have enough dry powder. Uh, but I wanted to understand what was happening. Was this purely technology? Was this just a panic in the market? Or was there something behind it that was more significant and in indicating that the economy was about to turn or something? So you don't jump right in until you figure out what, what's caused this decline. And, and then, of course, the decline would ultimately be as much as 33%. And that's a big decline over a very short period of time. So you think a lot about when you make your first reinvestments into the market. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to James Harmon. He is the author of the new book, Up and Doing, Two Presidents, Three Mistakes, and One Great Weekend, Touch Points to a Better World. Uh, his book is about his career, his reflections, his learnings over several decades, traversing the path from uh, Wall Street to Washington, where he was head of the Export-Import Bank. He's now helping lead investment in Egypt, you know, a good decade after the Arab Spring. There are some anecdotes which I just love in this book. Uh, almost Forrest Gump-like, uh, Wertheim, you're introduced, what is it, 30 years ago to Howard Schultz and this tiny little company, Starbucks, right? Right. So I had a young, bright, very capable man who was met or followed just very early stages of Starbucks where they had three stores. And he was convinced that it has an interesting potential. So he kept on talking to me about that. I frankly thought, it, like a lot of other small companies just beginning, what, what's so special about his coffee that would lead to anything like that? But he, he did persuade me that I should visit with them out there because they were about to do a public initial public offering and that they were trying to decide who would lead that public offering. Through the relationship I had with my young assistant and his own following of it, I decided to go out and visit uh, Starbucks. And I flew, I was in London at the time when he told me we had to make a presentation. They had prepared for something. I flew back from London to uh, Seattle and I met with Howard at that time. Howard was a very good salesman. Howard Schultz, the founder, the founder of Starbucks, which had opened 50 years ago in 1971 and was ready by 1992 for an initial public offering. And Howard was a great salesman, very enthusiastic about what, was, what he, he was going to do. However, I had the feeling he, if he's correct, it's spectacular. But he was talking about creating a new concept where people would want to stop off at a Starbucks between their work day and their home. And it became a, like a stopping point for everybody. And he was going to build this not only in the United States, but in other parts of the world. And it would become a giant. And he had large numbers in mind. At the time, it was nowhere near that size. So one had to really take the leap of faith that Howard was so capable and personable that he could somehow take this from this relatively early stage and build it into something that was his dream. And he pretty much did what he said he was going to do. And I was reasonably impressed enough to make a strong bid that we would co-manage the offering. Um, With Morgan Stanley, which was established, and he was he was using Morgan Stanley chiefly, but you got an appointment there. You you turned on a trip, it said in the book, from Europe. You know what? I'll I'll take this. It's important enough. And you went to bat sufficiently that you got Wertheim co-managing the Starbucks IPO in 1992. Well, it was more difficult than that. Some of my own partners, in fact, the senior partner in the firm, I was by then vice chairman of the firm, but the, my senior partner, Fred 
Klingenstein said, why are we supporting a company like this? It's it's early stage and the multiple of earnings that they're proposing is in the 20s. And he said he wouldn't invest his family money in that. And I said to him, Fred, lots of people are going to invest that I would invest in. And I think this man has got the idea that could possibly change the world of drinking coffee. This could, and that, of course, few of my partners didn't believe it. I mean, it um, was so, a McDonald's type distru- disruption to the to the world of retail and realist, you know, commercial real estate and everything. And just to give everybody an indication, 1992 is when Starbucks IPO. It had 165 stores. Uh, it was worth 250 million dollars. We are now in 2021. Starbucks has 350 thousand employees, 32 thousand stores, and a market capitalization of 135 billion dollars. Very rare in a career that you get to kind of be part of a, you hear about these kinds of stories in venture capital, a grand slam that this is such a a household name up there with Google and Amazon and the like, and so many other concepts come and go, and and your other partner at Wartime would have been vindicated, saying that this is overvalued. I mean, how much can you innovate a cup of coffee? Coffee's coffee, and yet you've still kept in touch with Howard Schultz, and you know he very nearly ran for president. Yes, well, Howard, when I did get to Washington, did call me, and he came to see me in Washington. I knew when he came to see me then that he had some ideas of doing something in public service, and he didn't know what it was. He wanted to understand how like, how did I get to Washington? What was my experience? I would eventually uh, introduce him in 1996 to Bill Clinton, and we did a fundraiser in uh, Seattle, and Howard was already starting to think about what he might do in public service, and he, he was very personable, so he he could appeal, uh, and his business experience had been so outstanding, and he Starbucks became a name that was so recognizable that he, sure. he thought a lot about it. There's one thing I want to read about here is kind of a revelation where you find a, a, another kind of gold mine and something you would not expect. This is you in 1987. You said, I oversaw an important and intriguing transaction as chair of Warner Chappelle. It began in 1988 when the owners of Birchtree Group, an international publisher and distributor of educational music, suggested a meeting. Birchtree resembled any number of small music clients that we'd advised. And I didn't attend the first meeting because it was a small business. One of my partners was present at the meeting, however, and he later told me the company is family owned, easy to deal with, and has a fascinating story. The story, you said, blew you away. In Louisville, Kentucky, during the 1890s, two sisters, they were kindergarten and Sunday school teachers, wrote the melody to what would become the most popular song in the English language. Their students greeted the school day by singing, good morning to you, good morning to you, good morning, dear teacher, good morning to all. Believing that songs were an important part of a child's education, the sisters published Good Morning in Songs for Children, 1893, which they promoted that year at Chicago's World Fair, and for which they secured a copyright. The students at Louisville Experimental Kindergarten School innovated with that melody singing Happy Vacation to You, Goodbye to You, and the famous Happy Birthday variant, which took off in popularity across the country. Birchtree owned the copyright to the beloved Happy Birthday, which generated about a million a year in licensing fees and accounted for around 85% of the company's profits. I love how you shared this story and that you found a value and recurring value in an otherwise... I mean, how many people on the street would have told you that Happy Birthday pays off royalties? 
Yes, of course, I was amazed at the time that happy birthday was not already in what we call the public domain. And that is that it, 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 you could still buy the song. One of the fascinating things to me about the music publishing business, which a lot of people still do see, is that, that an individual or a company could own the song. You could own happy birthday. And that surprised me. And I kept on checking with counsel over and over again. Yes, it was still something you could buy and you would be able to get royalty income. And there was a mechanism which people estimated the amount of times happy birthday is played or any song is played and you get your share of those royalties. So it was an eye opener for most of us. Um, And it became a continuous success, of course, but that most people even today don't realize you could buy a song. If you wanted to give your bride a song, you could buy I Love Paris or you could buy well, some Well, it's interesting other... in that the NFT stuff has come around right now and you find non-fungible tokens and the, abil- the, the ability in this world to monetize something and turn it into a currency and even, you know, uh, scenes or cartoons or memes that the fact that this market in 2021 has kind of gone wild with that. But I, I love that the kind of the, the seed of the idea with you, I mean, you were learning this in practice, in trade, as a Wall Street practitioner in the eighties. Yes, if I, if we had just once we bought Chapel Music, which was the leading music, independent music publishing company in the world, if I had really held that and not done anything else, I would be extremely wealthy today. Uh, and that somewhat reflects the fact that interest rates have come down so far that anything with a continuous source of revenue, any income like royalties on 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 songs would be very increasingly valuable and that's something we never saw the interest rates coming down that far and staying down um, but even then what happens is you have other investors and they all want to realize the gain and we could make 10 times our investment within a period of a year and a half people wanted to take the gain and so we executed it and we sold it to Warner Communications then uh and it was a very big success for them. We bought Happy Birthday when it became available for some $18 million. I mean, it was a spectacular buy. Full disclosure, stay with us. This show podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts at link fullderadio.com. Please subscribe, rate us, and recommend the show to friends, family, loved ones, everyone you can think of. We're also on the air, on the LP air in Northern Virginia and D.C. on WERA 96.7 FM. We are down in Asheville, North Carolina on WPVM 103.7 and all the way across the country in Ventura, California on KPPQ 104.1 FM. Holler if you too would like us on your air. If you're just joining us, we're talking to James Harmon. He's former head of the Export-Import Bank and the founder of the Caravel Fund. His book, which drops this autumn, is Up and Doing, Two Presidents, Three Mistakes, and One Great Weekend, Touch Points to a Better World. I love how uh, Jim kind of holds our hands through this random walk down Wall Street and into Washington and and still being uh, uh, active and irascible as an octogenarian. I got to ask you, Jim, you are vulnerable in this book and you share that your sad moment of your career that you wish people wouldn't talk about, but you did expand upon in this book, is your experience with Ames and Ames is there. And it's very interesting to me because it's completely in the ash heap of retail history. I mean, we know right now Walmart, Target, and Amazon, and even Kmart, Sears as an afterthought. It's pretty much close to liquidation. But back in the late 80s, Ames 
which was a kind of conservatively run New England company by a family. You you ended up as non-executive chair. Uh, One of the founding brothers had terminal cancer and approached you to do this. And it was number four. And Sam Walton, the founder of Walmart, even took a look at it. And this could have changed the course of retail history. But when you were there as chair, you allowed the company to acquire Zare, which was a much more unwieldy retail presence. It solidified Ames' number four position, but it also put it on a glide path to, to bankruptcy and kind of at the turn of the century liquidation. Tell us the value in going back and telling that story, because if I were to measure your career, it would have been just a tiny footnote, but you you spilled quite a bit of ink about it. So first of all, I still remember it as a terribly painful period of time. And when I thought about writing this book, I thought I should share some of the mistakes I made. And this was the biggest mistake I made in the business community. And it's interesting that some of my partners were active at at Wortham at the time, don't look upon it that way. I knew that it was a huge mistake once Zares came apart after we made the acquisition. So, but James, very, why? Very... Hold on, I I read this, and so it got over ambitious, and it took on leverage, and it hit the SNL crisis. Why you took it personally? I mean, th- there was some interesting stuff in there that when uh, the shareholder lawsuits emerged afterwards, and they demanded that Wertheim suspend, you know, give back its fee. You you regret that you didn't do that because it's important, as you say, to kind of write off these things and move on. And not not let them persist, and not let the pain, you know, drag on. That you kind of got a fish or cut bait, right? I, I think one of the things you learn from the experience is that when you're in the midst of it, and you go to a room and it's filled with people who don't even know you, you naturally think that they're looking at you with some pity because you've got this company going through this terribly difficult time period, and the stock has declined so much, and and yes. The whole industry was being impacted. Yes, the real estate market and the SL market was being impacted. So there was some explanation what was happening. But still, you personally feel that, that, that the world is coming to an end. Everybody is looking at you. It it reminds me of my friends who have been through a difficult divorce and they go into a, a party, some event. They think everybody's looking at him. They know he's going through a painful period of time. I felt that way, certainly with Ames, and I thought everybody would remember it. Even when I got to Washington and they did these mock trials, and uh, I remember saying to Bill Clinton, how come no one asked me about my Ames crisis? And he looked at me and he said, Jim, that was seven years ago. It was six years ago. Washington forgets these things, and you were on 20-odd boards, and one of them had a problem. So who thinks about that? And sort of put it into perspective a bit. But still, when I came time to write this book, it stayed in my mind as a mistake that I made. I was doing a favor for the dying chair. He asked me to serve as chair, acting chair. I took it on and we had this opportunity to make the acquisition. I thought it was a very smart acquisition. It proved to be not a good acquisition. At a time when the rest of the industry was suffering and real estate was coming apart, we struggled. And if a lot of people lost money who owned shares in the company. So very difficult time. Very quickly, before we move on to Washington, Jim, tell us about your kind of accidental experience as a movie mogul. <laughs> was it at Orion Pictures? I, I, I found it very interesting that there were slow stayed companies with interesting assets and intellectual property and creatives. But you say, you write in this book that it's a glamorous business, but one that doesn't make a lot of money. And there's a lot of frustration along the way. Right. It's a very, it is a very glamorous business. Most of my Friends, most people in the fans community loved to be on the board of a motion picture company. There were all sorts of perks that you had. For, for one thing, 
every new release from any of the motion picture studios, you could get in advance. So you were seeing films before anybody else was seeing them. You could show them to your friends. You could do all sorts of things. So glamorous business. Uh, I got into it backdoor, uh, actually, uh, helping a company called Filmways back in those days. And uh, we grew it. And eventually, we merged with the group coming out of United Artists, who were very talented people led by Arthur Krim. Um, and it became the Ryan Films. Orion Films a, in the 1980s. Yes. And I was known for which pictures? A lot of films. For example, Amadeus, mm. which we won a number of awards for, Story of Mozart, great film. Hoosiers, who was the story about the basketball team from Indiana, who still people watch that film all the time and talk to me about it. Numbers of good films that won awards. Uh, Orion was very successful in producing films that would be recognized and win awards. They did all of Woody Allen's films. We never made a lot of money on Woody Allen's films, but we loved to watch them and everybody loved to see them. So we were an example of a high quality management team making very good films that just didn't make money, enough money, that is to produce the kind of value creation for the shareholders. And so eventually we would have to move out of the business, but uh, we never lost money on it, but we had much more artistic success than we had financial success. I want to illustrate for our readers by way of transition that you uh, were an, an active Democratic fundraiser and activist in Manhattan, and you helped David Dinkins greatly uh, get elected. I believe it was in 1990, the city's first black mayor. And that put you really on the radar of the Clinton administration that took office in early 1993. You are feeling you're kind of winding down your Wall Street duties. You did everything you wanted to do as, as a kind of a principal and agent and a chairman and a film mogul and an underwriter and uh, an asset manager and whatnot. And you get the fateful call in 1997 from Al Gore after the Clintons are Clinton is reelected in 1996. You're thinking you're going to be tapped for Commerce Secretary. Instead, tell us what happened. Well, I had known. Ron Brown, who was uh, had been Secretary of Commerce, and he and I had traveled actually to China together. And in 1994, I traveled to Haiti, where I saw a country devastated at the time, very relevant today. But needless to say, I had made several trips with people from the government, um, and I had gotten to know Bill Clinton because of the work I had done with David Dinkins. So David Dinkins' campaign, which was in 1993, where I was very active in, in leading him. He was a friend and someone who I loved dearly. We had a regular tennis game and we kept up with each other on ev pretty much everything we'd done. So through him, I met with Bill Clinton and got somewhat more involved in helping Clinton in his re-election campaign. And uh, it was all very interesting. And I was already thinking I wanted to do something more than just work in the financial community. So to me, doing something... Had David Dinkins been elected mayor in 1993, I probably would have stayed in New York as the deputy mayor for economic affairs or development. I think I would have stayed here. But tell us about the call. Tell us about the Al Gore call, because I find it interesting in the book. You didn't even know if you had an email in 1997. <laughs> it was early January, and, and I was in the office, and I remember sitting there. In fact, I had... A, 
someone named Esther Fuchs, who teaches at Columbia. She was in my office at the time. And my assistant came in and said, uh, Vice President Gore is on the phone. And so she right away, she said, you want me to leave? I don't want to embarrass you while I'm here. I said, no, you can stay here or not, whatever you want. Anyway, Al, we didn't have speaker phones then as common as we have now. So Al says to me, Jim, early on, Jim, I want to communicate with you also (laughs) on email. So give me your email address. And I say, hold on a second, Al. Uh, oh, I think I might have called him vice president. Hold on a second, Mr. Vice President. And I said to my assistant, do we have any email? So it was literally embarrassing. He heard me and he said, Jim, if you don't know you have email or not, you got a, you got a ways to go on technology. I mean, this is emails coming to you. Now, actually, I really didn't know. I didn't have an email address. We were, It was June of 1997. Most younger people would not believe that you didn't know what your email address was. Well, regardless, you were offered this position to head the Export-Import Bank. You once told me that you had to look it up, uh, what its function right. was. And uh, it turned out to be just at maybe the most important time in the past several decades for someone to take that job because there were storm clouds on the horizon. Tell us. Yes, it was. But I didn't know really too much about the history of the XM Bank. And I said to my sister also, grab me some book that explains what the XM Bank while I'm talking to Al. And he overhears me and he says to me, Jim, look it up and call me back. <laughs> I will. I think, first of all, you should know what your email address is. And secondly, you should take a look at what the XM Bank is doing. We could use you in the administration. You would also be helping the president and do a lot of other sure. things related to that. I said, I, I think about it. I'll get back to you in the next few days. And so you took, it, you took it, and then hence this chapter, Saving Asia. Very few people remember that emerging economies in Asia were really falling apart. South Korea, Thailand, Malaysia, it was, uh, it was a depression, and it was a contagion uh, roughly 24 years ago. And you started yes. in that baptism by fire. Yes, and, and, and what's interesting is that um, I had joined uh, Exxon Bank formally. I was confirmed in, in May and in June, I joined the bank in Washington. I had moved there and I was working to get to know everybody in the agency. We had about 500 full-time employees and we had receivables because we had been, the, the bank provides the support to exporters who are selling goods or services to most of the developing world. Exports that would not go forward were not for the guarantee of payment by the United States government. So if someone wanted to buy some things, an African country wanted to buy some goods from the United States, the manufacturer of those goods often would say, how do we know if we're going to get paid? This is a country I'm not familiar with. So they wouldn't take the order. I had seen that a little bit in in my work over the prior 30 years, where we had turned down orders that we had gotten from countries we didn't know about or the company we didn't know about it. So the role of the Exim Bank in supporting exports that would not go forward were it not for the United States company guarantee was an important role. And the Exim Bank played a very vital role in job creation in the United States because to get this business to sell products and services to the developing world, which was growing, was very important for the U.S. manufacturers and service providers. And they couldn't have gotten it done without the Exim Bank. So it was, it was an important moment, important agency at that time for supporting U.S. manufacturers. And I could see right away that we could do a lot more with the bank than had been done. It was clear to me that was an opportunity to build the Export-Import Bank to something quite a bit larger and different than what it was in 1993. 
Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to James Harmon. The book is Up and Doing, Two Presidents, Three Mistakes, and One Great Weekend, Touch Points to a Better World. I want you to take me to the late 90s when Hillary Clinton, and you're in the Clinton administration, urges you to go visit Africa and that experience in Ghana. Tell us about it. Yes. Uh, it was actually something, I think it was not too long after I had joined XM Bank as chairman, and Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton had gone to Africa. Hillary had, had made a separate part of her trip, and she came back, and I was with her at the time, and she told me about Africa and said, you got to get over there, Jim. There's, there's a lot of opportunities for U.S. business to sell products to sub-Saharan Africa, and I, I would look into it, I said, right away, and I found out that no chairman of the Export-Import Bank in the United States had ever gone to Africa, Southern Africa, had never visited Africa. And so naturally, the Europeans were selling more product to Africa. Naturally, they didn't know that much about the U.S. XM Bank. And so I said I would go. Uh, she pushed me, but I could see after doing a little homework that this was a, a trip I should make. I did make that trip uh, shortly after her. And uh, so you find yourself in Accra, and you're getting a tour of a woman-led fishing village on the ocean. And tell us about the epiphany there. So, you know, when you make a trip like that, if you're a government official, they have your day so scheduled out and you're visiting with large companies and you're visiting with the government and so forth and so on. But we were driving through with a typical entourage that a government official would have. And I was leading that trip. Along the way, uh, I saw some people fishing and I thought, let's stop and see what they're doing. I'd like to know what they're catching. So we stopped and, and visited, and I, they spoke English, and I was able to walk up to maybe it was 18 or 20 women. Uh, and so with, of course, when you're with them, you have also security. People are worried that someone's going to shoot you or do something like that. I was not even thinking about that, but they, I had lots of security. So I'm sure that our entourage would frighten them normally, but I asked them some questions. So how much do you catch every day? And what do you do with it? So they told me that, well, our problem is that half of what we catch die before we get into the market. So didn't take a rocket scientist to say, have you thought about buying a refrigerator unit that would put the fish into it so it would be refrigerated until you got it to the market? No, we don't have that kind of money. And so I said, well, supposing that we solve that problem, would you be interested? And they were very responsive and very interested. And so uh, this is an example of how you can make a difference in government for anyone. Didn't take a brilliant person to figure out we had to just find a way to get them a refrigerated units. And so we immediately contacted my colleagues back in Washington and then got to the right people. And we were able to provide them with a refrigerator that would maybe it's even two units, not large. They could put the fish into it and bring it to the market. That would quadruple, if not fivefold increase in their so this take. Is, and they would- this is capital formation. This is the real aha moment for you because you thought it was just a grant. You thought it was a public relations opportunity, but they paid back the loan and then some. Yes. When you're in that kind of position, right away, I want to cut interest rates. Why do I want to charge them so high interest? They're struggling small business of women, no less, who I would love to support. And so, but there are some requirements that we have in an agency like that, where you you have an agreement even among other countries as to what you can do with your interest rates. Anyway, we found a way to help them and they paid it back and they did well and they built the business, which was very nice. But there were a number of other experiences like that that I saw all over the world where the U.S. could help small businesses to grow 
think that meant we were helping job creation in some of the most troubled and poor countries of the world. And it didn't take a, a lot of effort to, to, to get them refrigerator units. Now, the, this lesson, this lesson, and I've written about it before for Business Week, where I profiled you, is you took that in your act after the Clinton administration. You didn't stay with the Export-Import Bank after George W. Bush comes to office in 2001. Uh, you you open up the Caravel Fund, which invests in these frontier markets, these markets that you think nobody wants to touch with a 10-foot pole, the likes of Peru, the Philippines, uh, Ghana, which has become a prominent frontier market. These are really emerging markets on the bleeding, bleeding edge that, but after all, I mean, South Korea, which is now close to being a developed market was a very troubled emerging market just decades ago, was a tiny frontier market 40, 50 years ago. Every major country is a frontier country in its economic development. And tell us how that fund did over its lifetime. So we coming out of Washington and having, I had traveled to some 72 countries around the world as part of the XM Bank's effort to try to educate these four markets on what we do and how we could help them um, I left Washington thinking there was an opportunity to do more to help these countries and these companies and still do well for Americans who join with me. And so I looked closely into those markets and how we would do it. And I decided to form Caravel then, which would invest in marketable shares, common stock of companies from the frontier, what we call beyond brick. Beyond Brazil, Russia, India, and China. I mean, really on the frontier, going out there. And I've met people who were recommending alpaca farms in Peru. I've seen people, you've clearly, you took me to chicken farms in in, uh, in, in Zambia, right? Things that were building on a, a, a kind of a, the building of a lower middle class and, and stable institutions. You were really at the front edge of that. Yes. So I saw enormous growth potential in the developing world. It was a fraction then of the global GDP, but it was growing at a good rate. And I focused a bit more, as you said, on beyond brick to the smaller countries. And I first focused on Africa. But from there, we did focus on, on Latin America and on Asia, but not in the large brick countries. And we found lots of very good companies that were growing, doing good work and opportunities to invest. But not many people from the U.S. financial community were, were interested in investing in uh, in so-called high-risk uh, frontier countries. But what you taught me was that over the long run, uh, and there's a tremendous amount of volatility in the short run and the medium term, that these things kind of approximate, you, you get a good risk-adjusted investment return. I mean, your fund, the Caravel Fund, over its lifetime performed what? The Caravel Fund was successful. Between 2004, when we started actively building the Caravel Fund, and 2018, when I by then decided to work in, on the Egyptian matter, we showed investors a return, a compounded annual return of slightly better than 10%. So in all the ups and downs, and all the currency moves and all, with all the risk and all, it was a very good investment over that 14-year period. I know this is a little inside baseball, but I, as you know, I'm fascinated by emerging market investing. And the late Jack Bogle, who was a mentor, the you know the the the, the modern you know founder of the index fund, is synonymous with Vanguard, and that strategy has been really vindicated 
be the markets. Don't try to beat the markets. He doesn't believe that you need to invest in emerging markets. He believes that an S&P 500, the 500 most prominent companies in the United States, with multinationals such as Coca-Cola and Procter and & Gamble and John Deere, that's even better. You get the transparency and the liquidity as opposed to having to pay a person to go abroad and to, to shift to local currencies and to make sure that businesses are legit. And this is kind of, you know, the Bogleheads believe that you don't really need to build a better mousetrap. You would disagree. Yes, I would. But I there's a role for everybody. And if you pick the right large companies who are very diversified and broadly based, you can do reasonably well. I saw a much greater opportunity to support of businesses that were developed in the frontier countries, because it's not that difficult to follow what other companies and countries are doing. If you're based in Africa, you could, we had this experience in Egypt, you could find a way to bring technology into this, that country and that company, and you could copy what's being done in some of the other larger markets and do quite well. So I felt that the returns from the frontier and developing world would be consistently better than returns you might have in the in the in the larger markets. And I thought if you had good people analyzing it and following it, it was a good place to be. And there weren't enough people doing that. And we proved that you can do it. Jim, in the few minutes we have left, I'd love for you to tell us about your experience uh, following the Caravel Fund in 2018 as chair of the Egyptian American Enterprise Fund. This is a private corporation seeded by uh, U.S. government funds to promote the development of the private sector in Egypt. Isn't this initially controversial because a military leader came to power in CC after you know Hosni Mubarak was sacked ten years ago in in 2011, the dictator then. But Morsi was it Mohammed Morsi? He himself was sacked in uh, something that that was a democratically elected person who was put there. But the controversy there is that we are backing a person who helped oust a democratically elected leader. Even though Egypt is, by all measures right now, very stable under El Sisi, who's claimed that there's freedom of speech, but he has activists arrested as, as you know, in the war on terror. What say you? First of all, I think what I write about our experience in Egypt is the most important part of the book. Yes, it's important to see that I, I was a builder of businesses and that you can make a difference, whether it's in smaller businesses in Africa or is building the World Resources Institute. Yes, that's true. But frankly, what we did in Egypt is the most important part, in my judgment, of the book, because we went into Egypt after revolution. No one was investing there. And a lot of people didn't even want to take money from the United States. But we were able to find talented Egyptians, many of whom had been working in the financial community in New York or in London. And we were able to ask them to manage our investments, to look for the right investments. And we found some outstanding investments in Egypt. So the return that we've had now, which is from 2014, when we started sure. investing until 2021, the return now is about a little bit greater than 20% per annum, a little bit greater than 20% per annum. So we've gotten very good return, but more important than that, we've made an impact on the country. We have had success in job creation. We've had success in, in gender balance. We've done some important things in helping the private sector in Egypt to grow. And as the private sector grows in these frontier countries, we move towards democracy. But here's the deal. You're, you're, you're probably constantly asked about China, which is the 50-ton elephant in the room. And in the 32 years since Tiananmen Square, it's only become a more autocratic 
country. The, the economy has exploded. It's been, uh, you know, it, it, it joined the World Trade Organization in 2001. I'm taking a record number of people out of poverty, as you've explained. It's become the manufacturing hub of the world and has only become more autocratic and more problematic uh, ge- geostrategically since. Is there a lesson in that as well? Yes. Uh, I have always felt that countries do not necessarily have to fall our pattern of democracy and that we shouldn't always lecture every country to do everything like we did. We should be understanding that there are different countries who approach their own population in in a different approach than maybe the United States has historically. And so I'm not so critical of the autocratic leadership in some countries. If they are growing the country, if their private sector is growing, their private sector will be interested in reforms eventually and let those countries have their own pattern of reforms, which will lead to greater freedom for them. I don't believe in going in and lecturing the world on what they should do so that it models what the United States has done. I've seen too much of that, and we've not done well. We did not do well, obviously, in Afghanistan, uh, trying to rebuild that country. We should maybe not rebuild countries. Maybe we should try to help develop countries with their own strength and their own population, which is what we did in Egypt. We found Egyptians who could help lead it, who could invest these funds, who could help us to create jobs. And I didn't bring one American in beyond the ground in Egypt. They were all Egyptians. That was the key to our success in Egypt over the last eight years, using Egyptians to help build their private sector and helping them to to show good returns, but also helping to make reforms. And our impact report, which was brilliantly done in my judgment, our second one was only six months, tells the story of what we've done in those countries. And that concept of enterprise funds helping the private sector grow in a country like Egypt should be modeled, and we should do it into sub-Saharan Africa. We should do it in Central America. We can use that model without taking a great deal of risk, without costing the taxpayer much funds, and it can help these countries to grow and maybe even stop the kind of rush immigration to the United States, maybe by growing their private sector, they will be successful enough to create their own jobs. That's what we did in Egypt. And the model in Egypt should be applied to other parts of the world. That's That was the most important thing that I write about in, in the book. James Harmon, uh, in closing and not to short shrift it at all, you are co-chair of the World Resources Institute. And you have a chapter here titled Saving Asia. Uh, That's 24 years ago. What about saving the world? What about any unanimity in stopping the explosion of carbon in our atmosphere and even sopping some of it up? I mean, if this sounds a little strange, but if the COVID global pandemic is a dress rehearsal for global coordination, public, private, dictatorial, democratic, I don't think it augurs well for, you know, the battle to save our planet. So. A number of very important things alter that. For one thing, the success we've had in building the World Resources Institute, which when I became chair in 2000, in 2004, had um, a budget of $14 million a year and had maybe uh, 112, 114 people. And today we have a budget of a, approaching $200 million a year. And we have full-time employees close to 1,800. Um, so we've come a long way. And you can build a non-governmental organization that deals with the climate crisis that we have and also helps a number of other areas related to climate. So that success is an important part that we write about in, in, in the book. But I come back. 
the world is short of optimism. I believe you can make a difference. Anyone can. And whether you're working in your local school board or whether you're working in the United States government, I believe that you can't be stuck in front of a screen your whole life working on a computer. You have to have build relationships. And relationships international are very important. It should not just be with Americans. It should be with other people from around the world. My experience tells me that we can solve problems. And the climate is the most important problem that we have to deal with right now. And a very important conference coming up now in COP26, which will be in a few weeks, that conference will be widely attended by most of the countries in the world, and the U.S. will play a very important role. We need to incorporate what we've done in Egypt, in the Enterprise Fund in Egypt, into providing the funding for the frontier and the poorer countries to have the necessary resources to adapt into a transition from uh, fossil fuels to renewable energy. We have promised the developing countries and the poorest parts of the world that we would not ask them to stop working on fossil fuels unless we gave them the funds that they need to transition into a renewable energy world. And, you know, I have to say in that the lesson of your, you know, especially in your, your work in the frontier and, and the, the outsized gains that the Caravel Fund has had when you were investing in these countries is that it doesn't have to be all kind of dour, you know, Jimmy Carter and his cardigan telling you to turn down your thermostat, you can show people that you can do well by doing good, that there's clearly going to be opportunity in decarbonization. There's going to be opportunity in in green infrastructure that uh, these countries that are, that are decades behind the United States not only need United States funding, but they need capital opportunities, risk-taking appetites, and people like you who can see, I guess, risk-adjusted opportunity in that. No question in my mind, that's a key part of this conference coming up. The countries of the world have to work together to solve this problem. This cannot be us. This cannot be Europe. It cannot be China. We have to work together to solve this. It can be solved. Climate is going to be critical to us, and we need to support the developing poorer parts of the world to be able to transition to a non-carbon world. That can be done, but we have to provide the mechanism to do that, which is why I come back to the Enterprise Fund as a concept. We can do that at a minimum cost to the U.S. taxpayer because funds now in the United States came to me when we were doing this in Egypt. The public sector funds, private funds in the United States wanted to join with the U.S. So we could raise funds together with the U.S. government to help the developing and frontier countries to make this transition into a renewable energy world. It can be done, and it has to be done soon. We have to start working in that area so that we can save the world. That's how important I think it is. I don't think there's anything as important as that. There's anything I've done in my life than the climate issue today and trying to move the poorest parts of the world into decarbonation of the world. We need to provide the funding to to build renewable energy in these countries. And it can be done. The book is up and doing. Two presidents, three mistakes, and one great weekend. Touchpoints to a Better World by James Harmon, former head of the Export-Import Bank and founder of the Caravel Fund. He is now chair of the Egyptian-American Enterprise Fund. Uh, Sir, I cannot thank you enough for coming on the show. Robin, thank you very much for inviting me. Full disclosure, special thanks to Claire Morgan at Notterly and Margaret Engelhardt and Fiona Mora. 
This show podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts at link fulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate the show, and recommend us to friends, family, and anyone else you think might like it. Uh, We are on the air on WERA 96.7 FM in Northern Virginia and much of D.C. You can catch us down on WPVM in Asheville, North Carolina, and out west in Ventura on KPPQ 104.1 FM. Please contact me to carry this show over your air. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you so much for listening. Back with you next week. (laughs) 